Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. As the health sector, we really need to lead. We're talking about the impacts of climate change, and yet we are emitting a large amount of greenhouse gases. I'm your host, Alan Weil. There's a growing body of knowledge linking climate change to human health. From severe weather to air pollution to the spread of diseases, the health effects of climate change are profound. Today, I'll be discussing this important and complex relationship with Christy Ebay, a professor in the Department of Global Health at the University of Washington. She recently published two papers in the December edition of Health Affairs, which is devoted entirely to climate and health. She was also our advisor on this issue, guiding its overall content and quality, and has a tremendous overall perspective on the subject. Dr. Ebay, welcome to the program. Thank you, Alan. It's a real pleasure to be here. Well, let's just jump right into the material here. Your overview paper, which is one of the two papers you have in the issue, sets out the scope of the problem and it emphasizes disparities and inequities. So let's start with the scope and then we'll go into some of the issues of equity. Give us a high level picture. If someone were to ask you, why does climate change have an effect on human health? What would your answer be? We know from our personal experience and from a wealth of studies that weather affects our health. When it's too hot, it's too cold. When there are changes in the geographic range of diseases like dengue fever, we're individually affected. Any health outcome that can be affected by weather, by sea level rise, by ocean acidification could then mean that this health outcome would change in the future. Most of the projections show that as our temperatures continue to change, as precipitation patterns continue to be altered, that there's a very wide range of climate-sensitive health outcomes that are expected to increase without any interventions, without any attempt at adaptation, without any mitigation of greenhouse gas emissions. And so the concerns are very large of what could happen. The flip side of that is we have an enormous opportunity. Instead of in environmental health, where we usually wait for something to happen, and then we count how many people are affected, we have knowledge about the future that we can use to protect and promote our health today and into a very different future. So it's nice to think about a positive story here because most of us hear climate change and think, oh my God, there's nothing we can do. But before we get to that, I just want to understand weather. Okay, so weather, I think storms, I think hurricanes and people being displaced. I think of the stress associated with wondering whether or not your home is going to be there when you come back. But weather, I gather has many other dimensions around things like air pollution, around heat stress. Can you get into something beyond sort of the hurricane that we see and we know that that must have an effect? I really appreciate you starting with asking about weather because there's persistent confusion in the health sector between the differences between weather and climate. And the easiest way to think about it is climate is what you expect. Weather is what you get. And so we're talking about two parts of a continuum where weather is our day-to-day experience and climate is what happens on a longer scale and climate changes decades are longer. And you're right, we think of storms, but we also need to think of heat waves. We start looking at how diseases are changing their range. 
how for some diseases, the seasonality is becoming longer as the summer season is longer. You can think about people who've got allergies. The allergy season in some parts of the United States is starting almost one month longer than it used to. So hay fever is an opportunity for people in the future to think about how they're going to manage those kinds of health outcomes that bring misery to many people and send some people to hospitals. We need to think about what's happening with, for example, agriculture and our crop yields, that as the temperatures go up, many crops are growing on the thermal edge of their tolerance. So we're already seeing crop yields starting to fall in parts of the world. And it's falling in the parts of the world where people are most at risk for undernutrition. You can think about what we've seen just internally in the U.S. for migration, when we have these big events and how people migrate. And what do you need to do? I used to live in the state of California. And at one point during the wildfire season, 10% of the state of Oregon was supposed to go somewhere else because of wildfires. How do we manage that migration, the health consequences associated with it? So as you start looking at the list of all the possible health outcomes that could be affected by a changing climate, it's almost everything that a department and ministry of health has to deal with. So this makes me eager to get to the portion where we talk about the good news, because that sounded like a lot of potential bad news. I gather from the field that there's sort of two ways we think about what to do about this. One is adaptation or preparation so that we can sort of increase our tolerance for these kinds of changes. And then the other is what can we do to reduce the extent of climate change so that we don't experience these? Can you just say a little more about what people think about in those on those two different tracks? I'd be happy to. And the first one, as you mentioned, is called adaptation by the climate change community. Those of us in health just call it prevention. It's basic public health prevention. It's, it's what we do. As I said before, though, it's what we do with the added knowledge of how our climate is changing. We know what needs to be done but we need to have the incentive, the human financial resources and the political will to make that happen. So there's a large number of activities to undertake in terms of adaptation. They're critically needed and they're needed not just for our health, but for our health systems themselves, for all of the healthcare facilities, all of the hospitals that are located in floodplains that are located in coastal zones that are flooded by king tides, for example. We've got a lot of work to do. And at the same time, mitigation, which in climate change terms is reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. And that is equally important. We have to reduce our emissions. Otherwise, we are just going to be facing a much hotter, much more difficult future. You mentioned that you used to live in California, as did I. Uh, there, we... Uh, we're worried about earthquakes, and of course, we can't prevent them, but uh, there were huge investments, billions of dollars to retrofit buildings so that when an earthquake occurred, the damage would be lesser. Is that sort of the model for thinking about what we need to do on climate? It's a partially good model, and thank you for bringing that up. There are lots of capital investments that are needed but there's lots of smaller activities that are needed. Everyone needs to be involved in this. Some of the really effective heat wave early warning systems, for example, 
organizes where in a neighborhood, you've got somebody who looks out after those who are most at risk, checks on them, makes sure that they're doing what needs to be done, making sure that they've got the doors and windows open, they're wearing white clothing. And that's an individual community kind of responsibility. We see around the United States, lots of communities are taking on board sustainability initiatives that in the end will also make us much more resilient to a changing climate. So yes, we do need those capital investments and we need everybody else's participation because it is ourselves that are being affected and our children, our families and our friends. And then on the uh, prevention side, it's really all about greenhouse gas emissions. Is that sort of the target here for those of us in healthcare who sort of follow environmental issues at a bit of a distance? Uh, you hear the term pollution, and that conjures up images of particulates and soot. But I gather in the climate community, pollution is really greenhouse gas emissions. Is that right? There's a range of greenhouse gas emissions. Some of them, the bulk of them, come from burning of fossil fuels. So it's what comes out of tailpipes, what comes out of coal-fired power plants. And by the way, many people in the U.S. are not aware that most of our greenhouse gas emissions in terms of burning fossil fuels now come from what comes out of our tailpipes. And so thinking about what we do about transportation is critically important. There's other greenhouse gases like methane, and that comes from making cement, for example, from growing rice. And so there's a number of ways that we need to think about reducing emissions for methane. And then when you look at activities like agriculture, I mentioned the rice, but agriculture, livestock production also has significant greenhouse gas emissions. So we need to think about deforestation. We need to think about land use. There are lots of ways we can reduce our emissions and the good news from the people who study this is that we can rapidly bring our emissions down when we focus on all these different sources and take the near wins that are not very hard to implement and make sure that we work towards all of those. There's not one magic bullet here. There's a thousand different ways we're gonna reduce our emissions. And it starts with political will. It starts with having the policies, but it starts with me. Can I walk to the store? Can I ride my bicycle to the store? Do I need to get into an automobile? There's a lot of different ways that I can reduce my own emissions because in the end, every emission matters. So what each and every one of us does matter and how we vote matters because we need the political will to make sure we've got the large scale policies to help complete the picture. That's a good place for us to take a quick break and we'll do that right now. The innovative online Master of Science in Health Policy and Law from UCSF and UC Law San Francisco merges study in health policy and law and makes it possible for you to work while pursuing your degree. Even better, you'll be able to employ your new knowledge to your career in real time. Prepare to lead the future of health. Apply by the March 31st priority deadline to join the fall 2024 class. Learn more at uclawsf.edu forward slash HPL. COVID-19 has reshaped American life for 2020 and beyond. Much remains uncertain months into the pandemic. Along the way, Health Affairs has published research and perspectives on the novel coronavirus. Our free COVID-19 Resource Center collects blogs and fast-track journal articles, so you never miss the latest perspective from the health policy community. 
Highlights include an audio series from NYC Health and Hospitals on their early response efforts. Visit healthaffairs.org COVID-19 to stay up to date. And we're back with Dr. Christy Ebai talking about the relationship between climate and health. Your overview paper talks about the inequities, and we've been focusing sort of on the broad challenges, but these challenges uh, do not fall on people equally. Say a little bit more about who's causing climate change and who's bearing the brunt of it. It's a very important point. Climate change is a stress multiplier. So climate change does aggravate, in essence, many other challenges in our societies. When we look at greenhouse gas emissions worldwide, 80% of all the emissions come from just 20 countries. The U.S. alone is responsible for about 25% of all the emissions in the atmosphere. So we have a historic responsibility because it takes more than 100 years for those emissions to come to equilibrium. And that's why low-income countries look to the United States to say, you need to start reducing those emissions because it's affecting us. And most of the people being affected really don't emit that much. And you can look at the global scale, you can look at a national scale, but also when you look within countries, people who've got higher incomes tend to have higher consumption and tend to have higher greenhouse gas emissions. And so there are different roles and responsibilities here. And the United States has the opportunity to take real leadership in this area to show how we can use our technologies to bring down our emissions and how individuals can take the lead, as I said, on actions of really simple things, of changing your light bulbs, of putting all your errands together so that you do one round trip to get your errands done and not lots of different trips and taking every opportunity to take public transportation when we can after COVID and to get out walking and biking so that our overall emissions as an individual also fall. You know, speaking of COVID with the major economic contraction and people not moving around as much, one might imagine that emissions fell quite a lot. Of course, we don't want this to be the reason emissions are low and presumably they recover. But what do we know about how those broader economic patterns affect the creation of greenhouse gases? The emissions have fallen not very much, unfortunately. And when you look at the long-term pattern and you look at how long it takes carbon dioxide to come to equilibrium in the atmosphere, that COVID's really not going to have much of an impact on emissions themselves. It's having huge economic consequences in ensuring that people have the resources to be able to get through this period and to think about how to use the stimulus packages to ensure that we create the society we would like to see. That if people are going to transition to new jobs, that we have job training programs so that they move out of the greenhouse gas intensive industries into those that are more green technologies. And there's lots of efforts at the state level in various states to move forward in those dimensions. So we're at a critical time in our history in terms not just of COVID, but overall sustainability. And to take this moment to ensure that we use these monies that are going to become available to create the future that we would like to live in. You know, I was really struck as I was reading the papers in this issue that the healthcare sector is also a tremendous contributor to emissions. 
Um, of course, it's a sixth of the economy, so you think, you know, not surprising. But, but compared to transportation, you mentioned tailpipes. This isn't the first place I would go if I were thinking who's creating emissions. If you're working in healthcare, it sounds like there's a role to be played here, not just at the individual level, but at the organizational level. What, what might that role be? You're absolutely right. And several papers in this issue really have highlighted the various ways that our health system can reduce the emissions starting with the obvious of reducing emissions from, for example, hospitals. Do you need to have the lights on all night, every night? Are there ways that you could kind of cut down on the lighting? I think the patients would probably appreciate that very much. And it would help with your overall bottom line. And of thinking about the various operations within a hospital, the various equipment that you purchase and making sure that it is energy efficient but then you can start thinking further down the line of the entire supply chain. Where does the food come from? How's the food grown? Are there ways to think through your supply chain so that throughout the entire chain, you can start reducing the emissions? And then overall, as the health sector, we really need to lead. We're talking about the impacts of climate change on our health and on our facilities, and yet, we are emitting a very large amount of greenhouse gases. And we really have to demonstrate that we can reduce our emissions to take care of our future selves and our families, friends, and colleagues. So I appreciated your view at the outset that there are things to be enthusiastic about here. Uh, we are a wealthy country. And as you said, those with higher resources tend to consume more and create more emissions. Are there models of ways to not feel like you're just cutting back and giving up and going back to the dark ages? Uh, how do we combine progress and growth with the environmental stewardship we're going to need to get through this? The answer, of course, is lots of different ways. And you can think, I, of course, have an electric vehicle. I work in climate change. So I have an electric vehicle. I grew up in Detroit. It does not look that much different from a Model T Ford. There is almost nothing under the hood that's the same. I've lived in Europe several times, and you can go and buy appliances, thinking of kitchen appliances, where not everything has a clock on it. Our appliances use about 20% of all the electricity they're going to use in standby mode. And in Europe, I, I can buy appliances that turn off. I actually don't need five clocks in my kitchen. And so you can use the power to make choices to reinforce that we want more energy efficiency in our supply chains. And you can think about what it is that you purchase. In terms of environmental stewardship, think about how much waste you generate. None of us feel great about how much waste there is. Recycle, we're very active recyclers here in Seattle. And you start looking at the opportunities and look at the enthusiasm of the youth. They've got real enthusiasm for reducing, reusing, recycling and finding ways to make sure that we do have a more sustainable future that will support everybody with a kind of healthy life we want to have. So as we wrap up, I just want to ask, the tie between climate and health is well documented as, as we've discussed here, but the two sectors don't seem particularly closely aligned. When you hear climate plans, they don't tend to make a lot of reference to health. When you talk about health policy, don't tend to hear a lot of references to climate. You mentioned youth being interested in the topic. 
how would you guide a young student or a new faculty member to advance our understanding and our implementation of ideas that solidify this uh, relationship and yield better health and better environmental health? As I said before, it's an exciting moment. We have so much information about what the future could look like. We've got information about different possible futures in terms of different greenhouse gas emissions. We've got difference of different development futures. We've got sustainability development goals that give us an aspiration to move towards. And because of the significant underfunding of the health sector, I just love giving presentations to student audiences because I get 20 questions that we don't have the answer to. And there's so many different routes that people can start taking to engage in this issue and to find what really is exciting for them. And so I recommend people look at what's going on in your community. Find out where you can volunteer. Find out something that's really interesting for you. And doing so, you make a connection with people who are working in the same same field, who are thinking along the same lines that you are. You come up with more ideas and you become more engaged. And that's going to change our future. Well, I love that your answer was not a technology (laughs) or a policy, but it was about science and discovery and excitement about what's possible. And that seems so much what we need on this topic right now. It can be hard to listen to the challenges and it can be frustrating to think about what it's going to take to address these problems. But you're right. It's human ingenuity. It's creativity. It's discovery. It's not a fix. It's the process of human growth. And it's great to hear you put that forward as the solution to what might otherwise seem to be an intractable problem. And I do want to add something to what you said is don't forget that one person can make a difference. If you look, for example, at Mothers Against Drunk Driving, it was one woman that changed all the laws in the U.S. One. And yes, we need policies. Yes, we need our policymakers engaged. We need to have everybody involved in this. But people should not feel hopeless because there's so much that one person can do with energy, enthusiasm, some level of organization and engagement. And let's start creating the future we want. That's great advice, Chris. It's been wonderful talking with you. And thank you for all your help on the uh, issue of the journal, December 2020, and your contributions. It's a real pleasure to also be able to just have a conversation with you. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Brian Dobbs, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Podacy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening.